1 Samuel 26 in your Bibles, please. As always, if you need a Bible, don't have one. There are some on the back table to my right and your left. And you can always feel free to grab one of those and use it. Much of what I preach is on the screen behind me, but not all. And it is always helpful to be able to see those words for yourself. Also, one of the things that doesn't carry over, at least in our King James, from the screen is the places where there are italics. And as we know in our King James Bible, uh, where we see italicized words are places where there is no Greek word in the original text. It's a word that was supplied by the translator typically for clarity. And most times those words that are supplied by the translator are appropriate and fairly minor. Sometimes they're a little bit more interpretive, um, but it is one of the, the benefits of having an actual physical Bible that you can see the places, and you don't see it often in the Old Testament, very much more often in the New, um, where you'll see the italicized words that, in, that tell us that it's not a word that's found in the original text, the Greek or the Hebrew, but uh, was supplied by the translator for clarity. So one of many reasons I encourage you to have a Bible. Also, your own Bible means you can put notes in it and check cross-references and those sorts of things, which can be a great benefit to you. 1 Samuel 26, uh, the title of the message, If God is Pleased. There's a song that says this, If I gain the world but have not Jesus, were my life worth living for a day? Would my yearning heart find rest and comfort in the things that soon must pass away? If I gained the world but have not Jesus, would my gain be worth a life of strife? Or all earthly pleasures worth comparing to a moment with a Christ-filled life? There are times in our lives where earthly ideas, earthly ambitions, earthly desires, fleshly ideas or fleshly desires directly confront our loyalty to the way that God would have us to go. Times when what we feel we want to do directly contradicts or um, comes into contact with what the Bible says we ought to do. We're going to speak of one of those conflicts today. It's not a new one for David. This is the same conflict that he's had, the conflict over vengeance, over avenging himself. In fact, we've seen this conflict come up many times, but we're going to focus in just a little bit more on it today and understand why David does what he does when it comes to the way he is treating Saul, the way he treated last week Nabal. And we find as we begin today in 1 Samuel 26 that the Ziphites are again attempting to betray David into the hand of Saul. We find in verse 1, And the Ziphites came unto Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself in the hill of Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon? Now, I say that the Ziphites again sought to betray David into the hand of Saul because we did read this before. If you recall back in 1 Samuel 23, the Ziphites, David was hiding in the wilderness of Ziph, and the Ziphites at that time tried to betray Saul, or David, excuse me, into the hand of Saul. And it didn't work that time, and here they are again trying to betray David into Saul's hands. Well, Saul hears and he arises and he takes the scriptures, tell us 3,000 chosen men of Israel, and he goes to seek after David. And we find this in verses 1 through 4. The text tells us in verse 3 that Saul pitched in the hill of Hakala before Jeshimon. And notice specifically that it says he pitched by the way. 
The idea is he wasn't trying to be careful or sneaky. He was along the way of the road, the way that you would go, and he is just going to pitch with his 3,000 men along the way. He's not really trying to hide himself here. Now, David sent out spies, the scriptures tell us, and these spies learned of Saul's movements, learned of Saul's actions, and David decides he wants to do something a little bit differently this time. Typically, we would expect that the cat and mouse game is going to begin again, that Saul is going to pick up the chase and David is going to start fleeing. And, and David decides instead, it's time to shake things up. Maybe he got a little bit sick of the cat and mouse thing. He says, it's time to do something different. Verse 5 tells us or introduces to us the next events describing the encampment of Saul. Abner, the captain of Saul's army, was in the midst of the host. Saul was sleeping in a trench where he would be well protected. The 3,000 men encamped and circled around him. So by all accounts, this was a very secure setup. 3,000 men in tents, certainly had lookouts and all of that stuff. Then you had Abner, who was the captain of the, of the, the 3,000 men, and he was there right next to Saul. And then you had Saul. And Saul, he was in a trench. And so he was down low, he was protected, he had the men around him, a very protected setup. Notice what David says as we step into verse 6. Then answered David and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, uh, excuse me, Zeruiah, brother to Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul, to the camp? Abishai said, I will go down with thee. So David has two companions with him in his scouting effort. One, his name is Ahimelech the Hittite. Now, this is not the same Ahimelech that we have already come across. You recall we have already seen an Ahimelech in the text. But that Ahimelech, if you remember, was the high priest that David spoke to, ended up lying to. That Ahimelech is now dead because Saul killed him. So it's not that Ahimelech. And the scriptures actually tell us this was not even a man of Israel. This Ahimelech was a Hittite which would have been one of the nations of Canaan surrounding Israel. Now, the other man um, that we see was Abishai, and he was the brother of Joab. We have not yet been introduced to Joab, but he will become a very integral part of David's kingdom, of, of David's monarchy in Second Samuel. So David looks at the encampment and he asks who will go with him. Well, Ahimelech the Hittite doesn't say anything. And um, one of many foreigners that would have been a part of the 600 men that David had with him. But he just keeps his mouth shut. But Abishai says, I'll go. So David and Abishai go into the camp. While the men were sleeping, that 3,000 men in the army, Saul is sleeping, Abner is sleeping, and the scriptures tell us in verse 7 that Saul had a spear and that spear was stuck into the ground right by his head and he had a cruise of water there right by his head as well. The idea, it says that there was a long bolster. We read in verse 7, Saul lay sleeping within the trench and a spear stuck in the ground at his bolster. A bolster is like a pillow or a place where you would lay your head. But Abner and the people lay round about him. And as they looked at Saul, David and Abishai snuck into the camp. They're looking at Saul. They're near. And Abishai says this to David in verse 8. God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now therefore let me smite him, 
I pray thee, with the spear even to the earth at once, and I will not smite him a second time. Now, it's very likely that Abishai had been there when David was in the cave. And Saul was there, and they said unto him, Kill him. And David said, I'm not going to reach my hand out to destroy the, the, the Lord's anointed. I will not do this thing. And he cuts off the hem of his garment. It's very likely that Abishai was there that day. And so Abishai, he understands something. He understands that David is not, not, he doesn't want to kill the king. So he takes a little bit of a different angle this time because he's still convinced that God is giving opportunities here for David to kill him. This is God delivering him into your hand, David. If you won't do it, let me do it. David, if I do it, then you won't have to worry about maybe the people being angry at you for killing the king. You won't have to worry about your testimony. You won't have to worry about the Lord's hand on you. Let me kill him and let me deal with the consequences. And it's interesting the way he says it at the end of verse 8. He says, I will not smite him the second time. In other words, he said, just give me one stroke. Let me take that spear. I'm not going to need a second stab. I'll, I'll take care of it in one stroke. No one will be the wiser. He won't make a sound. He'll be dead. We can move on. But David's refusal to kill Saul was not simply based upon how it would look, his testimony, whether or not the people would be angry at him or think of him as some sort of um, leader of an insurrection. His concern was much broader than that. And we see this concern in verses 9-11 through 11, where David says this, Destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said furthermore, As the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed, but I pray thee, take now the spear that is at his bolster and the cruise of water and let us go. David reminds Abishai here of something that we would do well to remember also, that God has a natural order of things and our spiritual success is directly linked to our conformity to God's natural order. Saul was the Lord's anointed, and regardless of who killed him, no one could do so without incurring the wrath of God. It isn't about whether or not Saul was a good guy or whether or not Saul deserved to die. It was about the position that Saul had been given by God. God, was, God gave Saul the position of king of Israel. He was the Lord's anointed and no man can oppose him in his position of authority without opposing God. And David reminds Abishai here that God has every ability to take care of Saul in his way in his in his time. God didn't need to, uh, David didn't need to do it and God didn't need David's help. If God wanted him gone from the monarchy, God could do it. If God wants him dead, God could smite him. God could allow him to be destroyed in battle. David doesn't need to do it. As long as God is allowing Saul to stay on the throne, God would naturally expect all of those who are under Saul to honor him as the Lord's anointed. If God didn't want them to honor him as the Lord's anointed, then God would have deposed him by now. That's what David is saying here. This lesson is perhaps, as you recall last week, a carryover from the exhortation which Abigail gave to David. In the cave, David said, I won't touch the hand of the Lord's anointed. I won't avenge myself. 
But he had a much greater struggle, didn't David, with Nabal. When Nabal said, who's David? He's just a runaway slave. Just a runaway servant. And Abigail had to confront him and say, wait, David, isn't that the Lord's business to avenge you of your enemies? Isn't that the Lord's business to take care of this guy? So too, David now tells Abishai that it is no more his right as his companion to take Saul's life than it is David's right. And tells him rather simply to take the spear that's at Saul's head and to take a cruise of water that was lying there as well, likely so that if he woke up thirsty in the night, he could get a drink. He had the spear there in case it was needed. So David took the spear and water, and verse 12 tells us that he went away without any man knowing that they were there. And the scriptures tell us that no man woke up throughout this whole event because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon the men so that they did not wake up. So strange would it have been that they could get in and out of the encampment undetected that the writer acknowledged God's divine hand. It is likewise clear that God was directly involved in this event as another means of extended grace to Saul, allowing Saul to repent of his wickedness and recognize how misguided his actions were. So God is is providentially helping David and the intent is that Saul would see this that Saul would see that he's on the wrong side of things here and that he would repent. Well, the text tells us that David goes over to the top of a hill well away from the army where the army could not get him. And then he began to call out to them. And he began specifically to call out to the captain of the host named Abner. And we read this beginning in verse 15. And David said to Abner, Art not thou a valiant man? And who is like to thee in Israel? Wherefore then... Hast thou not kept the Lord, thy Lord the king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king thy Lord. This thing is not good that thou hast done. As the Lord liveth, ye are worthy to die, because ye have not kept your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the cruise of water which that was at his bolster. So in what can only be described as a little bit of a taunt here, David calls out to Abner. Abner is the one that is ultimately responsible to protect the king as he is the captain of the host there. And he begins taunting Abner. Where's the king's spear? Where's the king's water? Aren't you supposed to protect your king? Someone came in this night to kill the king, to do harm to the king. Where were you? You deserve to die for your negligence. He shows Abner the king's spear and Abner the water which he had taken from beside the king, showing that he was able to get close enough to the king without anyone knowing to literally take those things right from next to his head. And as David is, is speaking, he's calling out to Abner. Saul at some point awakes and he hears the voice of David. And he says this beginning in verse 18. Oh, excuse me. Uh, he says this beginning in verse um, 17. Is this thy voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, O Lord, my Lord, O King. And he said, Wherefore doth my Lord thus pursue after his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in mine hand? Now therefore I pray thee, let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. If the Lord have stirred thee up against me, 
let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men, cursed be they before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go and serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel is come out to seek a flea, as when one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains. David persists in his appeal here to Saul's reason to understand his perspective. He asks Saul, what evil have I done? He's asked this many times before. What evil have I done that you are pursuing me to kill me? He then appeals to God himself, saying this. He says, if it is indeed God who has stirred you up against me, if this is a righteous endeavor, if it is God who wants me destroyed, if it is God who has stirred you up against me to punish me, if, in other words, if Saul's quest is just before God, he says, well, then let's just get this taken care of. Let me give an offering to God. You give an offering to God. Let me repent of my wrong and let's get this right. On the other hand, David says, if it's not God, if there is uh, evil men who are stirring you up against me, who want me destroyed, then David says, cursed be them before the Lord. He curses them before the Lord because they have, and, and the specific reason he says, the reason why they are cursed is because they have driven me away from the Lord's inheritance. They have caused me to leave the land of Israel to, be, to not be able to worship God in the tabernacle. They have caused me to have to be in a pagan land away from the tabernacle of God where God wants His, his children. And he asks here, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. This phrase comes under debate in the text as to translation. If you were to read any of the more modern translations, they take the Hebrew to mean, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the Lord. Whereas the King James says, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. So really, they're almost exactly the opposite. One is David saying, I don't want to die outside of Israel. So cursed be these men who are keeping me out from Israel. The other one says, I don't want to die here. I don't want to die before the face of the Lord. I don't want to die for a wrong that was not mine. Both translations are valid in the text because of the preposition used in Hebrew is by nature a little bit more ambiguous. And this is one of the, the few places in the Hebrew where um, two entirely different translations could actually be valid. And it's simply an interpreter's decision as to which one uh, is correct. But David reiterates the very same statement that he made to Saul in chapter 24, verse 15. He says, you are chasing a flea. I am insignificant. There's no reason for you to fear me. There's no reason for you to be spending all this time and this effort chasing me. I'm little more than a flea. As if you were pursuing nothing. And he says, as if you were pursuing a partridge in the mountains. One bird in all the mountains. If the bird gets away, you don't spend all that time chasing the bird. It's just one bird. It's not that significant. He says it's the same with me. It's beneath your dignity. It's not worthy of your time to be chasing me. He says. Well, Saul responds quite as he has done before. 
so much so that it almost would appear to be empty. He says in verse 21, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. Saul admits his fault. He admits David's virtue. In verse 22, David tells Saul to have a young man come to get Saul's spear. Saul says, I've sinned. You come and you be a part. You come. We'll we'll, we'll make up. David doesn't believe him. He says, Saul, have one of your lads. Have one of your young boys here. Come get your spear. So someone who is entirely not a threat, someone that was very young and with the army, comes and he gets the spear and he takes the spear and probably the cruise of water as well and he takes them back to Saul. David then prays something in verse 23 and 24. He says this, The Lord render to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered thee into my hand this day, but I would not stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord. And let him deliver me out of all tribulation. David prays a prayer that seeks to fall in line with the character of God. He says this, God rewards the righteous. God rewards the just. As I have sought, as I have sought to make your life Saul, precious, by not destroying you when I had the chance. It is my prayer, he says, invoking the consistency of God and the character of God, that God would be good to me as I have been good to you. And indeed, David can rely on this because that's the character and the consistency of the God he serves. Well, Saul ironically then blesses David He says, Blessed be thou, verse 25, my son, thou shalt both do great things and also shalt still prevail. And the Scriptures tell us, David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. Once again, it kind of cut off Saul's ambition to destroy David. Probably because every time one of these things happens, it proves how righteous David is and how crazy Saul is and how wrong Saul is and Saul looks bad before his men. And so he just kind of lets it fizzle out. David goes his way. Saul goes his way. Certainly, David is not confident. He has no confidence that Saul is actually going to seek, stop seeking him. And so he goes off and he continues his hiding. As we consider this chapter of Scripture this morning, there's one primary point of application that I would like for us to consider. And as we consider this primary point of application, we'll do so in several different contexts. The main point is this. Vengeance is God's privilege, not man's privilege. God, as the designer of this world and all that is in it, has designed this world to function in a very specific way. Last week, we considered one of these functions in the morning service, that women have been designated by God to function in a submissive capacity. We talked about Abigail. We talked about the, the, her virtue. We talked about her submission. We talked about how God has designed the, the female to act and to interact in the home, in society, in the church. The same can be said about many other co- contexts of life. God has designed man to have dominion over the earth. The Scriptures tell us that. 
God has designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. The scriptures tell us that. God has designed the family to be the basis of a stable society. The scriptures tell us that. God has designed parents to have absolute authority over their children. The scriptures tell us that. In each of these contexts, and many, many more, we could, we could spend the rest of our time together today just raising our hands and, and listing off the, the designs that we know God has made for this world. Uh, basically take everything that culture is fighting against and that's probably something God has designed, right? And so we could spend our time doing that, but we don't need to. God has built into the very fabric of the human experience rights and privileges and responsibilities and not just the degree to which they are, but also their limits. One of these abiding principles is this, that God has unique and complete authority, soul authority over vengeance. Now, as I say this, it's important to recognize that as the authority over vengeance, God has seen fit throughout history and at certain times in certain ways to delegate this authority to certain people or to certain institutions. In Deuteronomy 19, we read about one who is called the avenger of blood in Israel. And this man had been given divine authority to avenge the blood of a loved one whose life had been taken at the hand of another. God established for those who had taken a life cities of refuge. And if they made it to one of these cities of refuge and they had taken the blood of someone else innocently, it was an accident or something to that effect, then he would be able to live the rest of his life in that city safely. If he got to the city of refuge and he had, and it's found out by the authorities, by the judges in the land, that he had taken the life, he'd murdered him unjustly, that it was in fact murder, the scriptures tell us he would be delivered unto the avenger of blood who would then have the authority to take his life. We also read throughout the scriptures, beginning with the days of Noah and continuing even unto today, that God has delegated, he has ordained to civil government the right of this, the extension of his divine authority to take vengeance. So that civil government has the authority and the responsibility before God to avenge evil. The civil government has the right to take the life of one who has taken the life of another. And the government does so not on its own authority, but on the authority of God. And so we understand things such as the death penalty as administered by civil government to be absolutely biblical. In summary, God has ordained legal authorities. And through these legal authorities, He has ordained that vengeance may be executed for wrong. But God never intended this principle of vengeance to carry over into personal interaction between two individuals where single person or a small group of people without the God-ordained authority of civil government or the God-ordained authority as given in the Scriptures go out of their way to seek vengeance upon another. And as clear as it is that God has ordained in certain contexts and at certain times that men can avenge himself or his loved one as dictated by God's ordained authorities, the general principle established throughout Scripture in regard to vengeance for wrongs committed against you is quite simply that you have absolutely no right to avenge yourself of the wrongs that have been done against you. And this is not just a New Testament principle. 
We read this in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So here we see God say, you will not take it upon yourself to avenge yourself or to bear a grudge to hold things against your neighbor, but rather you will love your neighbor as yourself. God would again say to the nation in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Therefore it shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and these things that shall come upon them make haste. God says, leave it with me. In time, their foot will slide. In time, they will be paid back by me. Leave it with me. To me belongeth vengeance. We read twice in the Proverbs. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Say not thou, I will recompense evil, but wait on the Lord. He shall save thee. And Proverbs 24, 29. Say not, I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. These Proverbs intended to relay timeless truths of God to every generation, call upon us to wait on God, to not do to others as they have done to us in the sense of wrong. To not say, well, I'm going to do wrong to him because they've done wrong to me. Siblings. To not say, well, she hit me so I can hit her. Well, she did this to me so I can do this to her. Well, she said that about me, so I'm going to say that about her. Sorry, I'm using all she here. That's probably... He is just as valid here. Right? Spouse. Well, he's not doing this, so I'm not going to do that. Well, she's said that, so I'm going to say this. Proverbs 24:29 says, Say not, I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I, that's God... Well, the, the idea is I will render the man according to his work. I won't do it. Let God do it. Now, as we step into the New Testament, the, these are our, our biblical principles that we see here. As we step into the New Testament, the exhortation written to followers of Jesus Christ becomes so much stronger than just what we see in the Old Testament. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. You have heard it hath been said of... It hath been said, excuse me, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the idea. They take my eye, I take their eye. They take my tooth, I take their tooth. Notice what Jesus says here. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whoso shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him up the other also. And if any man will sue thee at law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go with him a mile, go with him twain, that means two. Give to him that asketh of thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. This is a major statement, isn't it? That if a man would seek to sue you to take away your coat, don't just give him your coat, give him your cloak too. If he's going to take advantage of you, let him. That if a man's going to hit you on the one cheek, turn to him the other. Then if a man says, you need to go with me a mile, referencing the old Roman custom where a soldier could compel a man to carry his gear, 
If the Roman said, carry my gear, you had to do it by law. It says, if he compels you to go a mile, go with him too. If a man asks of you, give to him. If he wants to borrow from you, don't turn it away. Paul would say this in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, a similar idea. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. That means your neighbor. That means your sibling. That means your parents. That means your children. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. Let it go. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so thou shalt keep holes of Keep coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm going to apply in just a moment, but allow me to give you several more verses so that you might see the scope of the biblical record on this topic. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7 tells us, Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. This is speaking of believer to believer. Why do you not rather take the wrong? Suffer it. Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Paul says. Rather than go to the law against your brother, why not just be defrauded? Why do you have to avenge yourself? Scriptures tell us, don't avenge yourself. Jesus told us, don't avenge yourself. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 Paul said, See that none... Render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves, that would be among believers, and to all men. Well, pastor, you don't understand. They're not a Christian. They don't care. They don't care about the things of God. They're not going to do what's right. They're not guided by moral principles. They're not guided by the Word of God. They don't have the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter. Render no man evil for evil. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. The common theme as it relates itself to this compilation of New Testament commands and principles is that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, have not been given the right. Your government, your government has been given the right to execute vengeance. Fine. You have not been given that right. And God is the one in whom all authority rests to take vengeance. You've not been given the right to exercise God's authority among believers or among unbelievers to vengeance. We're told by Jesus in Matthew 5 to be those who elevate charity above fear of being taken advantage of. We're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 not to go to law with a fellow believer, thus marring the testimony of Christ before the unbelieving world. We are told in 1 Thessalonians 5 not to render evil for evil unto any man but rather to follow that which is good. We are told in Matthew 5 and in Romans 12 to bless our enemies, not to avenge ourselves or to avenge the wrongs that are against us, but rather to trust as David did in 1 Samuel 24, 25, and 26, 
that God would avenge him of the wrongs that were done against him. Throughout these chapters, David has mentioned that he would not stoop to the level of those that were doing wrong to him. He would not requite wickedness for wickedness. And he's doing this not because he wants to be holier than thou. He is simply conforming himself to the character of God. Paul said in this way, we can not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you want to have a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ to those that are being unkind to you? Don't requite evil for evil. Overcome evil with good. And the question that we ask is why? Why would God ask this of us? Particularly as believers, why would God ask such a thing of us to not avenge ourselves, to leave it with Him? Why has He not given us as believers the privilege and the authority to do this among any man? And for this answer, I reference us to Luke 6. It's a parallel passage to Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus said this, But I say unto you which here, in verses 27 to 36 of Luke 6, Love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. And pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee. And of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye... And this is it. Listen to this. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, if you only lend money to those that you think you're going to get it back, or you think are going to give you something in return, what thank have ye? For sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great. And ye shall, and here it is, ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful, to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. You know, Jesus makes the sun to rise and to set on the evil as well as the good. Jesus makes the rain to fall on the evil as well as the good. Jesus is kind to the unthankful and evil, just as He is to the good. We're called by God to be representatives of Jesus Christ to the world. We're called to show Him to those who don't know Him. Jesus entered into our lives and completely changed us from the inside out. He came into our darkness and turned it to light. He entered into our lives that were filled with sin and selfishness, and He made us new creations in Christ. He redeemed the unredeemable. He saved us from the very depths of our own wickedness. He gave us new life. And the whole point of God keeping us here is to represent that new life to the world. So we don't avenge ourselves. Because Jesus didn't avenge Himself. We don't avenge ourselves because we want to be like our Father in Heaven. 
and like His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus allowed Himself to be scorned, defrauded, and maltreated by men without any cause unto death. What better way to show the nature and character of Jesus Christ than to love those that hate us like He loved those that hated Him. Than to do good for them that hate you the way Christ does good to those that hate Him. David knew there was coming a day when God in His time and in His way would avenge Himself upon those that had done evil, Saul in particular. And we can trust this as well. When you are wronged, you don't need to get even. Let it go. When you are mistreated, you don't need to mistreat back. Suffer the wrong. When your enemies seek your kindness, give it to them. Because this is what God has done for you. And what He does to all men. And you really can't do better, can you? You can't improve upon God's formula. There's no way to improve upon God's formula. And if that's what God did, then shouldn't we? On April 12th of this year, I preached a message from 1 Thessalonians 5.15 in the evening service. And it was about vengeance. Most of you weren't here. uh, Many of you don't come in the evenings. But in that message, I highlighted some in some detail, several ways that we can tend to avenge ourselves. Now, I'm not going to repeat every detail that I gave in that message. You can certainly go back online and look it up. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, uh, preached on April 12th in the evening service. But I would like us to see again this morning some of the types of vengeance that we can fall into that are unbiblical so that the Holy Spirit has something to work with as we seek to search our hearts and have the Spirit of God search our hearts to show us where we might fall into some of these traps. And I, gave, I actually gave five. I'm only giving you four of those this morning. Types of unbiblical vengeance. The ways that we might tend to seek vengeance. The first is physical vengeance. Physically recompensing a person evil to evil. He hit me, I'm going to hit him. He took this from me, I'm going to take that from him. He pushed me, I'm going to push him. Physical vengeance. But you know what else is vengeance? Unforgiveness. Trying to punish a person, withholding from them your forgiveness in order to seek to punish them further for what they did to you. I'll never forgive him for what he did to me. That's vengeance. That's you trying to manipulate their emotions, trying to make them feel bad, trying to ruin them for for hurting you. How about unholy validation? Pastor, what does that mean? Well, when you use the wrongs done against you to validate some wrongs that you do against others, say, well, because I've been wronged, I'm going to wrong others. Because of what my parents did to me when I'm a kid, now I lash out at everyone. I get that in the jail a lot. Because of the way I grew up, now I'm just this way. I'm mean to others because people have been mean to me. I don't, I'm not kind to others because some people have not been kind to me. Um, He treated me bad, so now I'm treating her bad. It doesn't work that way. It's wrong. Finally, vindictive spite. Where you don't just get back at someone. It's not just an eye for an eye. It's not just he pushed me, so I'm going to push him. It's he pushed me, so now I'm going to go out of my way to ruin them. 
I'm going to make their life miserable. I'm going to lie to them, to their bosses, to their parents. I'm going to dismantle everything good in their life because I'm angry at them for something. Have you ever seen someone take something fairly minor and requite with terror? Have you ever seen someone's life ruined by another person simply out of spite or vengeance? We can fall into these traps. All of these are forms of vengeance that God has not given us the authority to assume upon our own lives. And the whole point is that we would recognize Christ's love for us in the midst of our wickedness and rebellion. That when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive us. As He was hanging on the cross, having been beaten and having been bruised and having been scorned and having been spat upon, and as He was hanging on that cross, His words were, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. People walked by and said, if you're the Christ, then come down off that cross. Then call the angels. Then avenge yourself of the wrong done against you. And Jesus hung. Yet, still. He didn't come down off that cross. He did not avenge Himself. There's a day coming for vengeance. But that day was not even in the hand of Jesus Christ. That day is in the hand of God. And God alone And Jesus would not take vengeance. And He did so as an example. So that we won't either. And as I close, I would like us to consider one more passage of Scripture. We've we've covered a lot of Scripture this morning, and I I don't apologize for that. But I want to give us one more passage that really sums this up beautifully. Connecting our willingness to suffer indignity and wrong and false accusation, even violence, without vengeance, for the sake of the testimony of Jesus Christ and to reflect what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ to the world. In 1 Peter 2, verses 20-25, to we read this. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, when ye be punished for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called. This is your calling, Christian. This is what God has called you to do. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in His steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth. Who, when He was reviled, reviled not again. When He suffered, He threatened not, but committed Himself to Him that judgeth righteously." who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. You were dead in sin, now you live unto righteousness. You were lost and going astray, you returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. He is pleased when you suffer for righteousness' sake. He's not pleased that you're suffering. But when you choose Christ's path, it is acceptable with God. There are people here that have suffered indignity. You've suffered wrong. Maybe it's a wrong done against you. Maybe it's a wrong done against one that you love. Parent, maybe you are suffering a wrong of your child that's been done to your child. Child, maybe you are upset about a wrong that's been done to your parent. Maybe it's something that has been done to a broader group. 
and you are seeking to take up the offense for that, you want vengeance. Know this, that a day of reckoning is coming where evil will be repaid. But it's not in your hand. And it's not your burden to bear. It's not your grudge to bear. It's not your vengeance to bear. Release it as Christ released it. Yield it to God and allow the day of God's reckoning to take care of it. That's what Christ did. And really, we can't do better. And see, here's the thing. This is what God has asked us to do. It's not fun to be taken advantage of. It's not fun to suffer wrong and to not requite it again. It's not fun when we're reviled to not revile. It's not fun when we, are, when we suffer to, th- to not threaten. But if God is pleased, what else do we need? Remember the song? That little poem that we began with? If I gain the world but have not Jesus... Were my life worth living for a day? Would my yearning heart find rest and comfort in the things that soon must pass away? If I gain the world but have not Jesus, would my gain be worth a life of strife? Or all, all earthly pleasure, all vindictive spite, all vengeance, would all earthly pleasure, is any of it worth comparing to just a moment with a Christ-filled life? I don't know where you are today in this spectrum of vengeance, but if you've been holding on to something, seeking something, personal vengeance, would you today give that to the Lord? Give that person to the Lord. Be willing to suffer whatever it might be in this life, the being and taking advantage of or the wrong, in order that by God's grace you can reflect Jesus Christ. And then just wait for the day when He will avenge you, for He promised that He would. Let's pray.